So, good morning and welcome. Uh, if you're new here, um, uh, you're particularly welcome. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our series um, on Jeremiah. And this morning, if you'd like to turn with me to Jeremiah 32. Um, we've been studying the book of Jeremiah. And for those of you that maybe haven't caught the whole uh, series so far, Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet who um, was used by God to speak to his people, the Israelites. And at the time, the Israelites were not really being particularly sincere in their relationship with God. They'd followed God in, in word, perhaps, but not in heart. And as a prophet, uh, Jeremiah really has quite a tough time. Uh, he's called by God when he's really very young um, and predominantly spends his life delivering messages to people who don't want to listen and to people who don't understand him. And you generally get the impression that this is a hard calling uh, for Jeremiah to walk with. It hurts when people don't understand you or perhaps choose not to understand you. And Jeremiah knows a thing or two about that. He's often referred to as the weeping prophet, regularly crying out in frustration. Uh, and how often do we find God's call frustrating? And how often do we find other people frustrating also? So this is Jeremiah. And together we're going to look at part um, of the, the next part of the story of how God uses Jeremiah to bring about his purposes. So if you'd like to join with us, we're going to read now from chapter 32, verses 1 to 15. Um, the words should appear on the screen behind me. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now, Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, that's the guy speaking, Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Masir, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. 
take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Well, what an interesting passage. Let's take a a closer look at this. Um, If we were to simplify this into a retelling, you can split this passage into three sections. The first being Jeremiah's discussion with the king, the instruction he receives from God, and then the action that he carries out. And to give us a little context, um, in verse 2, it paints for us quite a vivid picture. At the time, Jerusalem has been surrounded by Babylonians. They're bad guys, in case you didn't know. And it says that they'd been besieged. Now, in a nutshell, that means that thousands of Babylonian soldiers surrounded the villages and fields around Jerusalem, aggressively ensuring that no one could come in or go out of the city. And typically, in this method of warfare, um, whether the attacking force could breach the walls of the city or not, the siege itself would often lead to the city's defeat. You see, most fortified cities relied on trade and harvest from the surrounding fields. If no one could come in or go out, then supply chains quickly broke down and people began to starve. I imagine there was quite a sense of panic at the time in Jerusalem. And to make matters worse, uh, there was a bad guy king called Zedekiah, who hadn't been doing the Israelites any favours at all. He'd angered God. Even to start with, Zedekiah wasn't even the rightful king of Israel at all. He'd been appointed by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, after King Jehoiakim, which is the king that Gav spoke about in his talk, had been exiled. And not only did Zedekiah not listen to Jeremiah or to God, who'd been speaking through Jeremiah, but he'd rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Um, which um, was to bring serious trouble upon Jerusalem. He'd sinfully put himself before God. And later on in the book of Jeremiah, it says that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he's a bad guy. And Jeremiah had made sure that Zedekiah knew that God wasn't happy, and yet he'd refused to listen and repent. And so, at this point in the story, Jeremiah is being held as a political prisoner in the courtyard of the palace by Zedekiah. What's he done wrong? Well, nothing except speak the word of the Lord. But as all too often happens, the warning from God for Zedekiah falls on deaf ears. And instead of humbly repenting, as in fact we all should when this sort of thing happens, he goes on to attack and imprisons Jeremiah. It's kind of like an extreme case of shooting the messenger. You don't like what's being said, so you take it out on the person who said it, instead of addressing what has been said. And that's a really important lesson for us to learn because sometimes God uses those around us, the community of God, to speak things to our hearts that we really need to hear. And how we choose whether or not we're going to hear it is really important. But... Here's the best bit. Jeremiah has been so persistent in his message from God to King Zedekiah that Zedekiah knows the message himself and can and does repeat it back word for word. How incredible is that? Um, Just imagine it. Zedekiah himself is spreading the message from God 
the very message that says that he has sinned and there will be a consequence and that he will eventually pay that price. We see that in verse 3. It's quite interesting that Zedekiah knows this. You see, the message had been given before disaster had struck and it was given as a warning and yet here we are all around disaster, disaster every which way you look and there's been no change and no repentance. How do we respond to God in our lives when he tries to warn us? Do we respond positively? Do we acknowledge the warning and change our behavior? Or do we ignore him and bundle headfirst into whatever disaster befalls us? Do we imprison the messenger? And quite surprisingly, whilst Jeremiah had previously de- delivered a message of doom, as a warning before any trouble had enfolded. Now that the trouble was all around them, his message was a message of hope. And that really challenges me because how do we act? Are we gracious towards others like Jeremiah or judgmental like an X-Factor judge? And so after these opening few verses where we see the context for the passage, God speaks to Jeremiah. And it's really quite simple. God tells him what's about to happen and what he'd like Jeremiah to do. And exactly as God has said, it happens. Hanamel, his cousin, comes to the gate of the courtyard where Jeremiah is in prison and he asks Jeremiah to buy his field. And at the end of verse 8, his response is brilliant. He says, I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Incredible certainty. And so Jeremiah buys the field for 17 shekels of silver. And that's not a lot, in case you were wondering. Uh, King David had paid 50 shekels for a threshing floor. And Abraham had paid 400 for somewhere to be buried. So 17 for a whole field really isn't that much at all. And perhaps that's all the field was worth. More likely, it's all the money Jeremiah had. I can't imagine the work of an unpopular imprisoned prophet making that much profit at all. And yet the startling thing is that any land surrounding Jerusalem during a siege was currently worthless. It was probably like this. Okay? It had thousands of Babylonian soldiers walking all over it, most likely burning any buildings and destroying any plants. They will have taken anything of value and destroyed the rest. So the field really was a duff purchase. Okay? And anyway, what did Jeremiah need with the field? He was in prison. But it's not until verse 15 that it becomes clear to us why. This was an act of faith and obedience. God had given an instruction which Jeremiah obeyed. And out of it, we see Jeremiah's faith in God, but God's faithfulness for Israel. And in turn, turn, the hope for the future. In verse 15 it says, For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. So this single field, this panic sale from Hanamel, under the most unlikely of circumstances, provides an opportunity for obedience great faith, and ultimately the hope of a future promise that even after the Babylonians defeat them, the city will be restored. It's an incredible passage, isn't it? 
Um, it's about the sovereignty of God in all things. So hopefully, uh, this gives us a little bit of a, an understanding of the passage, a little bit of context. And we're going to explore this a little bit further now. Um, and to make it easier for us to do that, I've got three points. And the first point is a relentless pursuit. The second point is faithful obedience. And then the third and final point is a hope for today. So my first point, a relentless pursuit. Don't you just love the first bit of this story? It tells us a lot about Jeremiah's character um, and his commitment to the work of God. Zedekiah knew off by heart the words of Jeremiah's message. How do you think he'd done that? How do you think that happened? Had he Googled it? Had he been rehearsing a school play? I doubt it. No, most likely Jeremiah had returned day after day after day to deliver that same message. He was persistent, and that's a good thing. We all know someone who's a little bit like this. They're entirely passionate about a subject, or even many subjects, and you just don't stop hearing about it. Am I right? They go on and on and on. Sometimes their passion is infectious. Other times it's simply annoying. They're so incredibly persistent that they just will not give up. Is it that they don't know when to give up, or is it that it's not in them? Perhaps this is the kind of person where the dial goes up to 11, but numbers 2 through 10 don't work. So there's only two settings, 1 or 11, so you either get all or nothing. Am I right? Do we know someone like this? I'd like to think that that's the kind of person Jeremiah was. And a relentless persistence of this kind is an act of passion and nothing else. It's not a character flaw. It's not an annoying habit. It's not even delusion. It's about passion. Passion for something or someone. It's a passionate pursuit. And so often, that passionate pursuit is a response to someone. And most likely, it's a demonstration of real love. And so just as Jeremiah had been relentless in his message to Zedekiah, what areas of life are we relentless in the message that we speak? Do our friends all know who we are and who we stand for? And what is it that you stand for? Is it something temporary, like chocolate crispy cake? Or is it something lasting, like Jesus Christ? Did you know that our message, whether verbally spoken or lived out through our actions, is rooted in our identity? And where does our identity come from? What is our identity? Jeremiah was clearly pretty confident in his identity. Well, the Bible tells us that our identity is not rooted in what we do or don't do. It's not rooted in our actions or life status by our bank accounts, education, relationships, our sexuality, or even our sin. Our identity is not in anything that we do. It's in who we are. And Jesus Christ says that who we are are children of God. We are new creations. Is that your identity? And like Jeremiah, does your message come from your relationship with God? Or is it filled with self-seeking fulfillments that are fleeting and temporary? You know, I'm always excited to hear the stories of some of Shirley's friends that she brings on Alpha. 
So often they include uh, part of the journey from before they even join the Alpha course. That journey describes the pursuit of Shirley, <laughs> who through friendship has tracked them down and invited them to know Jesus. And I think we'll all remember how Sarah SpongeBob described Shirley. How was it? Oh yeah, that's right, like a stalker. Okay? So persistent in her message of love and hope that many lives have been changed due to Shirley's relentless pursuit of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're thinking, well, I'm just not sure that I'm made like Jeremiah. I'm not sure that my message about Jesus is clearly spoken to all my friends and family. I'm not like Shirley. Well, that's okay, because this is not actually about our determination or our persistence. This is actually about the determination and persistence of another, his relentless pursuit of you, his passionate message for you. And that person is Jesus. And his message for you is, I love you. Okay? It's a very simple message. I love you. I love you. I love you. Have you heard it? Have you heard it? He says he loves you. Or has it fallen on deaf ears? His pursuit of you knows no limits. He doesn't see roadblocks or conventional restrictions. He smashes right through them to meet his goal. And his goal is you, and his goal is me. How do you respond to his relentless pursuit of you? Have you popped him in a box and thrown away the key like Zedekiah did to Jeremiah? Or do you relentlessly pursue him and his purposes in return? What is the message of your life? Who do people see when they look at you? Does everyone know? Does everyone you know know that Jesus loves you and that you love Jesus? It was Jeremiah's response to God's message that led him to obedience. And this leads me to my second point, a faithful obedience. We see in verse 6 that God speaks to Jeremiah about Hanamel's field, and we learn from the passage that God has made it clear that Jeremiah should buy that field. Now, it was worthless, um, and Jeremiah didn't need it. He was unlikely, in fact, to ever see it. But for Jeremiah, he saw something that the onlookers did not. He didn't simply see just a field. He saw an opportunity for obedience. And through that obedience, God's purpose is to come to pass. And he did not hesitate. He, through his obedience, he demonstrated great faith. And God rewarded that faith with a promise that would be hope, the hope of all Israel. Jeremiah invested in land as an act of faithful obedience. In what ways is God asking us to step out in faith? In what ways do we give our whole heart? For when we give him our whole heart, the evidence is clear for all to see in our every action. Through God's grace, we are the recipients of his love through a personal relationship with Jesus. You see, grace is an incredible thing, and we're incredibly blessed to be part of a movement of churches that are defined by grace. And grace is very simply this, the incredible act of Jesus 
who died for our sins to give us what we have not earned and do not deserve. What is it that we didn't earn? Our salvation. We've paid no part towards our salvation. And that's good news for us, actually, because it also means we don't contribute in any way at all to keeping our salvation. What was it that we didn't deserve? Well, we don't deserve life. You might think that sounds a bit harsh, um, but the consequences of our sin should have been death. And Jesus took that for us and gave his life in our place. He gave us forgiveness even when we couldn't change ourselves. And that's God's grace for us through Jesus' death on the cross. His death should have been ours, and yet he took our place when we hadn't earned it and did not deserve it. And yet, like the Israelites at the time, we mustn't confuse the message of grace as a free pass to ignore God. Grace is not like that. When we put God first, not only do we see his bigger picture in everything, but we get to enjoy a relationship with him. God's relentless pursuit of you is a pursuit of love. And he gave his only son for you. In 1 John 4 verse 19 it says, We love because he first loved us. God doesn't demand obedience from us. He's not like a parent trying to mould the will of a child, although sometimes we act like children. Instead, out of a response to his unconditional love, we offer him obedience as a sign of our love for him. We obey because we want to. We obey as a gesture of our love. We obey because in a world where he has already given us everything, we give what small gestures we can as a sign of our love and gratitude. And sometimes those small gestures cost us something. And when Jeremiah bought that field, it came at a cost. Onlookers probably thought Hanamel was conning an old man out of his money. But Jeremiah was not concerned for the things of this world. His eyes were firmly fixed on God. Out of love for God, Obedience was Jeremiah's first response and his primary concern. God's purposes would eventually be seen through that obedience. And through this seemingly random act of faithful obedience, we see God's greater plans revealed. Plans, in fact, that have significance far beyond Jeremiah's life and circumstances at the time. What is our response to God's love? Are we eager to submit to him through obedience or do we selfishly rebel placing our desires above his? My third point is this, a hope for today. In verse 15, God reveals his plans and promises. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. And Jeremiah's new field is now a physical, prophetic sign of a hope for today, for a future yet to come. That God will restore the promised land back to the people of Israel. 
At the time of writing, Jeremiah did not know the practical details of what was coming. He didn't know how the nation would be restored. And he, uh, all he knew was what God had promised. And one of the outstanding pieces of this passage is that the obedience, the act of obedience, had come before the promise. The obedience is a product of Jeremiah's faithfulness to serving God. The obedience is a sign of his faith. The promise is made possible through Jeremiah's obedience. Now, I'm not saying that God wouldn't have promised restoration for Israel in any other way. I'm sure that he would, because he's a good God and he's sovereign. But the promise is made possible through Jeremiah's obedience. And Jeremiah gets to be part of that promise by being obedient. And um, I don't know about you, but when I read my Bible, it's full of the stories of people who did obey God. We don't actually know about all the ones who didn't. Okay? You get to be part of his story through obedience. And in God's promises come a hope for all in Israel. And it's not actually just a hope for Israel. It's a hope for us too. The promise of a house again being bought in the land is a promise of restoration, of new life, and of fruitfulness for the kingdom of God. This field is not simply the hope of a besieged people. It is a foretelling of Jesus, who was and is and is to come the hope for all mankind. Is he your hope? That same guy we talked about relentlessly pursuing us, he, Jesus, is the hope for all mankind. It's a sign of a future, not just for Jeremiah, but a future for us too. A future where complete restoration comes to the earth through Jesus Christ, where a new heaven and a new earth will be raised up. It says in Isaiah 65, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Small acts of faith are used by God to do great things that we can only imagine. Jeremiah was only being obedient, and yet he did not know the significance of his obedience. Notice what Jeremiah does with the deeds uh, to the land. He stores them away safely. Has God given you promises? Has God spoken to you at all? Have you stored those promises close to your heart, or have you lost them somewhere by the way? Let's make sure that as a church we store God's promises. Let's find hope in God's word for us. Let's not hold his word lightly, but respond with sincerity, sincerity to his calling. Here we are, Jubilee, the people of God. His people, each one of us, relentlessly pursued by the creator of the universe, welcomed into his kingdom by grace and grace alone. Jesus, who gave his life for you, has extended an invitation to each of us to give of ourselves in a fully relentless pursuit of Jesus, that we may enjoy the fullness of his blessing, but that we may be part of his purposes, that we can have a personal friendship with him. You see, our sin, that's the stuff we've all done wrong, the stuff uh, that has focused on satisfying ourselves instead of on focus, focusing on God, and we've We've all done this, no matter how good you might think you are. 
Each of us has sinned. The Bible makes that quite clear in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that sin, it separates us from God. It removed us from relationship. It stops us from coming close to him. And yet, this is the good part. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the consequence of our sin was death. And yet Jesus took our place. Not only so that we didn't have to die, but so that we could be forgiven. But much, much more than that, so that we could be credited with righteousness and restored into a place where we can call God friend. And typically when we welcome God into our lives, we begin to see things differently. We begin to see hope in our lives. We begin to see his love for us. And we begin to see the areas where we need his grace. And we also begin to change, often right here in our hearts. I loved uh, Kirian's uh, word this morning about the the widow uh, with the oil that wouldn't run out. And then Raj followed it up with, um, what circumstances do we need to trust God for? And sometimes I think that uh, our circumstances are practical and physical and you know, are actually related in something that we can see change. But sometimes what we need to trust God for is right in here. It's in our hearts. And he cares about what's in our hearts. He cares about our attitudes. He cares about um, our desire for him. He cares about how much we love him. He cares about how much we love his people, how much we love his church, how much we love those that are lost and hurt and dying. And so often what we need to trust God for is a change in our heart. So if we reduce and dilute God's power and sovereignty to just changing our circumstances, giving us a little bit more money in the bank, then we will have missed what he's really about. And he's about our hearts. And God says that he changes our hearts and our lives from an empty, godless being into something that's becoming more like Jesus. Will we respond to Jesus? Will we shine brightly for him so that like Jeremiah, everyone knows who we stand for? Because when God changes our heart, the concept of obedience as something restrictive and that takes away my freedom changes and suddenly obedience is something that releases freedom. Suddenly obedience becomes a, a passionate thing, a desire, something that we're eager to do. Is it the cry of your heart that people would see Jesus in you everywhere you go? The world doesn't need our clever ideas. They need Jesus. And he lives in you. Okay? Will you be faithful in your passion for Jesus? Will you be obedient to him and his call? Will you respond to his call to love the world? His call to love the church? Will you give of yourselves fully in a relentless pursuit of his kingdom purposes? And are you prepared to be used by God, whatever the cost? You know, this story is much, much more than just a historical account. It's more than just a nice lesson in morality. 
this is a prophetic statement for us as a church jubilee right now. You see, the people of God at the time were under attack. It was a tough time. Whilst they were trapped in the city, it must have felt like it wasn't a very fruitful time at all. They perhaps could have stood on the walls of the city, looked out to where their harvests should have been, and all they saw were Babylonian soldiers. The harvest was close enough to see, and yet it wasn't quite here yet. And yet, even in these tough times, there was a prophetic promise that they could cling to and have their hope in. They had to persevere. They had to have hope in the one who'd made the promise. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Jubilee, we're in a battleground. God has made promises for us as a church and for Teesside that are yet to come to pass. Will we give in? Will we succumb to temptation? Or will we stand our ground? Will we stay true to the one who's called us, the one who made us? Is he our message? Or will we fall to the side? Our hope, Jubilee, is not in a building or larger numbers. It's in Jesus Christ. And Jubilee, as we stand together as a church, will we be part of God's restoration plan for Teesside? At the right time, will we step out in faithful obedience to move into a new building? Will we trust that whilst the road may not be easy, that God will meet all of our needs and he will work it together for his good purposes? Did you know that God's heart and plans for Teesside are bigger than all of us? Did you know that God's church is part of his plan? It's not just part of his plan for you, but it's part of his plan for Teesside and for all the world. If the band could please um, come up. God has promises that he's yet to fulfill for Teesside and for Jubilee. And he has new promises that are yet to come. Our hope's not in a building or in Jeremiah's field, Our hope is in Jesus himself and the promise of things to come. Do you notice Jesus today? Do you know the one who gave his life in your place? Do you share in the hope found only through Jesus? There is no other way, okay? This is not an all mountains lead to God sort of thing, okay? If you don't know Jesus, now is a great time to meet him. Come and find one of us. Come and speak to the person who brought you. But don't miss this opportunity because Jesus is pursuing you and his message is I love you. Our actions speak of our heart and of our commitments. Do your actions serve Jesus or your own interests? Is obedience a privilege and a pursuit for you? or something scary that you'd like to avoid? Is God calling you to have a voice for him? Will you answer his call? Will you step out in faith? Do you know the one who is relentlessly pursuing you, what is your response to him? In obedience, will we share him with others? Will we step out in faith?
Where is your hope today? Let's pray, shall we? Um, Father God, I want to thank you that your heart is for us. Father, I want to thank you for your word that you've given to us. But Father, I want to thank you for your son, Jesus, who came down to earth to die in our place. To give us what we don't deserve, Jesus. To take away our sin and our wrong, Father, and to give us a hope for a future. And Father, as we stand and here and as we, we worship you, Father, help us come and change our hearts so that we truly know what it is to lay ourselves down and to respond to you in faith, in obedience, and with hope, Lord Jesus. To put you first in our lives, to put you first for this church, to put you first for Teesside, and to put you first for the world. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your sovereignty and for your power to change all things, including my heart. Father God, in your name. Amen.